I think when Pastor Paul asked me if I'd be willing to speak tonight, he was hoping there'd be a snowstorm. Um, so uh, you're kind of stuck with me. Most of you know how much I love history, so I can't speak without talking about history a little bit as uh, we go on. A history person always does three things, I think, whenever they come into account. One thing that you do is you kind of fantasize and you say, okay, what would I be if I was in that account? What would I have done? What would my response have been? The second, the second thing that you do is you think about the what ifs. What if things had gone a different direction? What if it had changed? What if this thing had happened or that happened? How would history have changed in, in, in the long run, not just in the short run? But then the third thing that you do when, when you're looking at history is, is you often look at those key words, those key phrases, those periods of dialogue where, where it inspires you, where, where you think about um, just, just what that would look like. Let me give you an example. Turn over to Daniel chapter 3. It, we are not speaking on Daniel chapter 3 tonight. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example. And this is how a historian would look at this passage. Daniel chapter 3, I want to pick it up at verse 13. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're, they're being told that if you don't bow down to the, to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, because the Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had said, no way, I'm not going to do that. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe lyre, the big band, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Chuck Young, if you're put in that situation, how are you going to respond to the most powerful man in the world at that point who is known for cruelty, who knows how to hurt? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship your golden image that you have set up. I love that spirit. I love that heart. My God can can save me. I'm not worried about that. But no, even if he chooses not to, Nebuchadnezzar, I will not worship your gods. I worship the true living God. Words are important. Um, I shall return, gave great hope to the prisoners of war in the Philippine Islands during World War II, and General MacArthur said, I'm not leaving you here. I will return. We have an inauguration coming up on uh, Thursday, and 
And I remember JFK's words that all of you could probably repeat very easily, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Tomorrow, a lot of us are off. Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And certainly his I Have a Dream speech, one of the most powerful ones. It was interesting. Did you realize that that speech almost never took place, at least not to the measure that it was? He had prepared for the 100,000-person march on Washington, D.C., and he had this great speech written out that he was going to do. And uh, he had prepared it, and if you ever watch the film of it, he's reading it and, and doing his thing. And then one of the singers, his name was Loretta Jackson, who knew Dr. King well, was listening to his speech and said, No, Martin. Tell the people your dream. And if you watch, if you watch the film on, on that, that speech, he takes his, his folder and he puts it under the podium. And then he starts talking about, I have a dream someday that little black children and white children will be judged not by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. Would never happen unless someone had told Dr. King, speak from the heart not from a prescribed speech. Well, so, I, so I'm thinking that, and I'm a dad, and, and I have to tell you a story of how this played out in my family's life. Katie, my, my youngest daughter Katie, probably the best athlete in my family, um, she is in her senior year, and we are playing Pencrest. Now, TCA was always our great rival, and we wanted to beat TCA, but the high water mark in field hockey was Pencrest. Pencrest was a Central League public school, and they were known for being well-disciplined, a lot of talent, and rough, physical. Field hockey's not supposed to be a, a physical sport. The year before, Katie was playing field hockey against Pencrest, and she got checked to the ground, and I saw her stand up, and she looked around, and I yelled out to her, number 23. <laughs> the coach turned around and said, we don't do that, Mr. Young, and yelled at me, but she wanted her revenge on that. Well, we're, we're driving home the week before the big Pencrest game. In case his dad... Um, I have devotions before the game. Do you have any suggestions on what I do? And I said, you know, Kate, my favorite book, and you know this, is, is, is I, just, I just love First Samuel. There are so many good accounts, so many good stories, so much good dialogue. And you're playing Big Bad Pencrest. You should be able to come up with something. I want you to read through the book and come up with it. So we go to the game. And the game, by the way, was on a, on a Thursday night under the lights, which field hockey, you don't play under the lights normally. So this was, this was a big game. And those girls were psyched. And I'm watching. And it's a physical game. And people are going all over the place. And D.C., at the end of the game, the score was 2-2. Two to two. It ended in a tie. But for D.C., that was a, that was a moral victory. Because we had played Big Bad Pencrest and at least held them even. So, of course, I'm being the proud dad and I'm saying, I can't wait to hear what devotion she chose to share. What were the words that she used to inspire that team to go into battle against the giant Pencrest? And, of course, all of you know what I'm thinking she's going to tell me about. What's she going to tell me about? David and Goliath, of course, chapter 17 is what I'm thinking she's going to do. She goes, Dad, I took your advice. I took a passage out of, out of 1 Samuel. I took 1 Samuel 15. 
thinking to myself, no, no, you mean 17. No, she said, 1 Samuel 15 is, is, is what I used. This is what she used to inspire her team. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to the, to the, to the Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go, this is what she uses to inspire her team. Now go and strike Amalek and devote it to destruction. All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I wasn't sure if I won that, that leadership with her or not, but that was the, the, her coach had to come up and say, girls, what Katie is really saying is play with all your might. I said, no, I don't think that's what Katie was saying, but we'll, 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 we'll let that go. Okay. We're going to, we're going to move into, I want to, I want to look at three men that Paul was dealing with when he was on trial in Caesarea series. So we're going to look at, uh, Felix, Agrippa, and Festus and how they responded and the dialogue that went on there because I think, oh, those, these are first century leaders, men, scholars. Boy, they fit right into 21st century thinking. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we can move over to, we'll start out in Acts 24. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. That although uh, things do change, technology comes and goes, the heart of man is the same. And it's our job to be instruments of your Holy Spirit's will to challenge, to spread, spread the news, to sow the seed, and then to trust you for the increase, for the conviction, for the convincing. So Father, even as we look in your word tonight, as we look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul and the thinking of Felix and Agrippa and Festus, that, Lord, you'll challenge us to be ready in season and out of season to defend your word, to defend the gospel, to present it clearly and boldly. And so I pray that tonight, as we look into your word, that your spirit will meet us where we need to be met. If we just pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. When Paul is... Uh, just to, to refresh your, your memory on, on where Paul is. He completed his third missionary journey. He had gone into um, Jerusalem, and as he's about to go in Jerusalem, he's being warned, and he knows it himself by the Holy Spirit himself, that, that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be taken prisoner. And sure enough, he gets to the Temple Mount. He's, uh, uh, he, he goes up to the Temple Mount and some people from uh, outside of Israel say they think he's taken a Gentile with him onto the Temple Mount and a riot begins uh, and, and looks like Paul has got to be beaten to death on the Temple Mount as he's worshiping. And the Roman soldiers come up coming out of the Antonio Fortress, which is connected to the Temple Mount. They just march out. They protect Paul. They move him in. But Paul's about to be, as he gets out, and he addresses the crowd even before he goes into the Antonio Fortress, again under the protection of the Roman soldiers. And they listen to his testimony. They hear that he is a Jew. He speaks to them in Aramaic, the, the, the language of the people. 
He calls them brothers and fathers, and the people are listening to his testimony until he gets to the point where he says, and God called me to go to the Gentiles, and as soon as that happens, a riot erupts again. Paul's taken into the Antonio Fortress, and the tribune in charge of him gets ready to beat him, gets ready to flog him. And Paul at that point says, uh, is it lawful to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? And immediately they stop. He's a Roman citizen. We have to treat him with respect. Eventually, uh, the commander of the Antonio Fortress, his name is Lysias, gets Paul, transports him to Caesarea outside of Jerusalem, go to put him before Governor Felix, and there he will stand trial. The, the situation in Israel is, is a hotbed. Israel, this is 58 AD. They are 10 years away from revolt. Caesars have put different governors in in Israel, really to try to quell the crowd. It's not that Rome is worried about an Israeli uprising. They can put that down. They have the military strength to do it, but they don't want to commit the soldiers or the money. And they certainly don't want other countries to think that they could come in and, and add to Israel and maybe revolt against Rome. So, so Israel's a powder keg, and the governors who are in charge of the area want to try to keep things as peaceful as possible. So that's the background that that comes in as Paul meets his first governor, and that governor's name is Felix. Now Felix is, he, he knows Israel. He's married to a Jew. His wife, Drusilla, is Jewish. He knows the customs and culture of Israel. And after Paul does his accusation, after the Paul, the accusations are given against Paul, Paul's able to now share his defense on, on what it's going to be like. So in verse 22 in chapter 24, chapter 24, we're going to pick it up at 22. Felix gives Paul a chance to share what the, his situation, his side of the story, if you would. Are you starting to write? Are you a bad guy all over the place? That's what he's accused of. And Paul says this, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. These are those from Israel who are challenging who Paul is, saying, Lysias, the tribune comes down. I will decide your case. I want to pick it up. Pick it up at 10. And when Paul the governor and governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find anything disputing any, anything that I had done wrong. The temple or synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, this is important, verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And often when Paul talks about the resurrection, he gets, let's say, 
harshly criticized on that. Now I want to go down to 22 with Felix. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. These are Paul's accusers. And he just says, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have the liberty uh, to be with his friends should, it should not be prevented that they can attend to his needs. 24. Now, I want to think about, think about Felix's response to Paul sharing the gospel and the things that Paul talks about here and the effect that it has on Felix. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, at the same time, Felix had hoped for that money would be given him um, by Paul. So he sent for him offered often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring uh, to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. There's an interesting dynamic that I I think Felix presents. Felix knows the situation of the believers. He, 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 He at least knows what the, what the community, the followers of the way are. He also knows about prophecy. He knows the customs of the Jews. But when Paul talks to him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, there, there's, there's, a, there's a, a push-pull situation where, that's enough, Paul, I don't want to hear any more. But then he brings them back. But I don't want to hear any more. But then he brings them back. And I think what hap- was happening was in, in, in Felix's life, he couldn't just dismiss the message that Paul was giving and I think he was having some sleepless nights about it. The Romans weren't known for, for being the most civilized people in the world. They were great with technology. They were great with science. But they were very hedonistic. And the rulers were known for harshness. They weren't known for being gentlemen. And, and he hears this, I believe, in the, righteous, uh, the resurrection of the righteous for glory and the unjust for damnation. I believe that, you know, and, and Paul's talking about the, the, the life that, that a man should have before God and that God is going to hold him accountable for that. Paul shared the gospel with him also, that the cure for all that uncertainty, for all that judgment is found in Jesus Christ at the cross. Can't accept that yet. I don't want to hear anymore, Paul. But I gotta hear more. I don't want to hear more. I, I gotta hear more. And and poor Festus is is in this Felix is in this this situation where he can't ease where his conscience is before God. 
Two years pass. Felix is now gone. Paul's been in prison or house arrest. And the new governor comes into play. And his, his name is Festus. Festus' job from Nero, who is the emperor, is to keep things under control. I don't want to have to dispatch my legions to calm down Israel, keep it under control. So first thing he does when Festus comes in, and Festus, I believe, is a good ruler, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, the governor reigns from Caesarea. The army is basically in Caesarea. Caesarea is the modern city, and that's where Rome centers itself in, the, in, in Palestine. But he travels to Jerusalem, and when he goes to Jerusalem, first thing they bring up after two years, hey, you got a guy in prison who we want to have tried down here in Jerusalem. In reality, if we looked at Scripture, what they wanted to do is they wanted to ambush Paul on the way down to kill him. So Festus trying to placate the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem says, uh, Paul, are you willing? Now, he's, he's asking because Paul's a Roman citizen, and that does carry some weight. Paul, are you willing to be tried before the Sanhedrin. And Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's court now with you, Festus, here. No, I'm not willing to go down to Jerusalem. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. In fact, I want my trial to be before Nero himself. Well, Festus doesn't really know how to respond, except he is going to send them to, to, to Nero. But to send them to Nero, he, he feels like he needs to know something. And he absolutely does not understand any of this stuff about Christianity. I don't get any of it. So he wants to, to, to figure out, what, do I, what am I going to say to Nero if I don't understand any of this stuff? It doesn't make sense to me anyway. So just at that time, Festus is, is in Caesarea now. He's been there for a few days, and the guy who shows up is King Agrippa, king of Israel. And he's talking to Agrippa, and he says, Agrippa, I, I, I need to know. I, I, I can't just send this guy to Nero without giving Nero any heads up on what this is all about. And Agrippa says, you know, I'd love to question him. I know a little bit about these guys. I know about these Christians. I had some relatives who had a bad relationship with some of those guys. See, Agrippa has a couple of Herods in his past background. I think I'd like to question him. Would that be okay? Festus said, I would welcome it. Please do so. So in chapter 26, if we would, it's now Agrippa. Agrippa is questioning Paul. But right next to Agrippa is Governor Festus. That's the power, is Governor Festus. And, and they're listening. And Paul starts off with talking about what his past life was. He persecuted the church. Uh, talks about being trained by Gamaliel, the best Jewish teacher of the time. Talks about his conversion and meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. Pick it up at verse 19 here. Chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, and 
Well, let, let's go a little bit. Let's make sure we know what that therefore is. I, I knew one pastor who said you should always do that when there's a therefore in there. We'll pick it up at 16. This is Jesus' calling on to, to Paul. But rise and stand upon your feet, and I shall appear to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and, and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, uh, to open your eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I'm going to send you to the Jews. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles so that they can hear the gospel. You're going to be my chosen instrument, if you would. And then Paul says in 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and therefore all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people, to our people, and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and reasonable words. I'm talking to my eighth graders when I'm teaching this passage. And I say to them, you know, we are telling the world that we are to base our lives on what we know in this book and on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I will commit my entire life to that. And better yet, I will tell you that what I've done is true and reasonable in what I believe in and what I base my life on. Now, I have to tell you, the unsaved mind, I agree totally with Festus. You must be out of your mind. How can you base your entire life on a book and on a resurrection 
that never happens. Okay, I'm, I'm not a speaker. Let's see if it'll work. We got it? Good to do with you what I did with my eighth graders. Paul said that the words that he just spoke were true and reasonable. How do you defend that? I'm sorry, but Festus, I think right now the, the weight's on his side. You've got to be out of your mind. How do you tell me, how do you, how do you convince the world that what you are saying, what you base your life on is true and reasonable? Anybody want to jump in on that? Cowards. Thank you. What would you say? I, I say the same thing that I've been saying for 10 years. I strictly go straight to the conscience. And I tell them that the conscience bears witness to us that we all know right from wrong, regardless where we are in the world. And I also tell them that what Scripture also says, that through creation we know there's a creator, not to appeal to the intellect, but also that we know that God will judge us and our conscience is what convicts us when we do wrong and no one knows we did it. So you're going back to Felix, actually, where Felix... There's a piece of it he wanted to know more truth from Paul, but didn't want to hear it. That's, that's Holy Spirit conscience. And, and Festus will call me crazy. Anybody else want to respond to that? You're going to make me walk further, aren't you? This is why you guys should sit in the front. Yeah, really, you're tough. I'd say... Look at the changed lives of people like Peter, who at the time that Jesus was being uh, on trial said, I don't know the man. And days later, basically, he's before the Sanhedrin speaking like nobody ever spoke to them before, boldly about the resurrected Christ, whom they had killed. How do you explain such a change in a man's life? Okay. So one argument could be the changed lives of the believers that took place. None of them, by the way, ever backed down from saying, I saw the resurrected Christ. And they died pretty hideous deaths except for one. Anyone else have a defense? We're supposed to be ready in season and out of season. Can you defend from Festus's accusation that you are out of your mind for believing this way? Not that anyone in the 21st century would ever say that about us. Right? How do we defend it? We have history that's pointed the way. We have prophecy that's been fulfilled, countless upon countless prophecies. We have disciples that are willing to die for a man who are eyewitnesses to a man dying on the cross, saying he is God and we know that he is God. And the miracles he performed, all these things point to who he is. Okay. Anyone else? Last call? You're going to be able to respond to Festus? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Paul's on trial. And the trial is to whether or not he's allowed to stay in prison or whether he has to stay in prison or he's set free. And that's really the whole aspect of what Christ is for. Either we're set free from sin 
or were cast into prison, which is damnation. Paul's words. True and reasonable. And I would say we have three proofs that we can give on that true and reasonable. And I want to go back to uh, an earlier trial, one that Peter had. If we could go to Acts 2. Acts 2, I want to pick it up at 22. This is Peter talking to the Sanhedrin about Christ proving that he was the Messiah. Acts Acts 2, and I'll pick it up at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. You guys saw this. Historical proof, evidence. You guys saw this with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to uh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, but the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. First proof was historical evidence. That first century, Peter's day, we're 80 days from the crucifixion. Give me the body. Most of these guys saw, saw the miracles that Christ did, or at least heard of them. And when we go back to Acts 26, Paul's going to say, none of this was done in a corner. None of this was done secretly. It was done in the open. So, Nance, you said, I believe, you said uh, one was through miracles and, and signs and wonders, if you would, on who Christ was. But the other thing you said was prophecy. I heard on that. And the fulfillment of prophecy is a, a, an absolute clear evidence of Jesus Christ and who he was and what he did. That the Messiah would suffer, would die, would, be rose, would rise again. And then the third piece, I think some of you said... I think the testimony of who we are and what the apostles did, but also who we are and how we live our lives. If our lives are being refined into the image of Jesus Christ, we have three very strong arguments there, historical evidence, prophecy, and the reality of who we are and the way we live our life. If we are living our life according to what God wants us to, the world can't dismiss that. They can try to say forget it, but they can't dismiss it. 26, we've got two guys, Felix and Festus. Now I want to go back to uh, 26 here. When we look at, we, we still got Agrippa here to go through. But Paul said to him, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he looks at, at Agrippa and says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? So we got three guys. We got Felix. Here's it. I don't want to hear anymore. I need to come back. I need to hear more. I don't want to hear more. He had this ambivalence. You have Festus. You are out of your mind. He doesn't really, he, he, he can't get his hands around it. And then you got Agrippa who, who has, has been there, has seen the event, has seen or at least heard firsthand about what Christ did and what these Christians are doing. He says to Paul, not right now. Not right now. I'm not going to accept it now. Now, the thing that's interesting about all three of these men, although Festus will call Paul out of his mind, he says, your great learning. They're not saying they're uneducated. They're not saying that Paul is uneducated or stupid. He's not calling him a gun-totaling Bible thumper or whatever other words you want to put in there. He's not using that phrase. He's not dismissing them off. They're hearing the gospel. Now, it's the Holy Spirit's job to, to bring conviction to these guys. But they all have very different responses for men who are willing to at least look and hear what Paul is saying. It's interesting at the end, right? Then King Agrippa, this is verse 30, then, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. They're not saying he's a believer. They're not saying they're believers at all. But they're not dismissing what Paul has said as untrue. In fact, by the fact that they would have released him, they're siding with him over what the Sanhedrin wanted him to do, which was to put Paul to death. And I just want to say that that in our 21st century connection that we as we engage the world I would like to think that everybody we can engage with and we talk about the reality of the cross being true and reasonable that we're not going to have everybody accept that but I think what our job is as the Holy Spirit convicts is I think our job is to create sleepless nights so that people can't just dismiss what we are saying that if we are people of integrity, if we are people who live the life that God has, has asked us to live, to commanded us to live, and we do that, and people see a difference in who we are, I honestly believe that we will be creating sleepless nights when we share the gospel. I think Felix had sleepless nights. I think Agrippa said, not yet. Festus, he's getting his hands around it. But they at least have said, you know what? This man has done nothing wrong. They're hearing 
the message of the gospel. So that's our challenge. That we be ready in season and out of season, that we speak boldly, that we create sleepless nights in a world that would prefer to see us as weak people who need a crutch. Not a crutch, a whole ambulance is what we get. We get more than that. We get the hospital. Let's not back down from our Festuses, our Agrippas, and our Felixes when those opportunities come. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the baldness of Paul, but I, I, I thank you too for the account that we have in Scripture of how these three men process the gospel. Because I, I, I think it, it's real in what we deal with, in what we have to face. But Lord, our, our words, we, we do live by faith, and I base my salvation on what Jesus did on the cross. But there, our words are also, the words, your words from Scripture, the historical evidence, the fulfilled prophecy, the changed lives all point to words that are true and reasonable. And the world doesn't want to accept that. At least they don't want to accept it on the short term. But Lord, cause us to be bold, to be confident, to allow your spirit to use us as we engage the world. Spur us on to that, we, pray, we ask. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.